Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Titus? Titus chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 11 in just a moment. We're plugging right along in our study in the book of Titus. We've almost made it. We've made it over halfway, almost two-thirds of the way through. And as I remind you every week as we just go back and kind of remember how we got to where we're going, what's going on in the book of Titus, I remind you each week what is the theme, the big idea of the book of Titus. It's on the screen there, the truth that accords with godliness. Now, why do I keep repeating that week after week after week? Well, number one, I want you to see that it's really in the text, that I'm not making it up, that that's what God's Word says, that this idea of truth that accords with godliness, that it's going to pop out every which way we turn in the book. But I also want you to know it so well, so that if your deacon of the week calls you at 2 a.m., wakes you up and asks you, what is the theme of the book of Titus that you're ready to respond? Truth that accords with godliness. Now, if your deacon of the week calls you at 2 a.m. and wakes you up and asks you that question, take it up with the deacon. Don't take it up with me, all right? But I want us to understand this is the theme of the book. This is the idea that keeps popping up over and over throughout the book of Titus. Today we're in verses 11 through 15, and if you found your place in God's Word, whether in body or in spirit, would you stand with me for the reverence of reading God's Word? Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And the grass withers, And the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glorious gospel as we hear described in these verses. And Lord, even though it's, it's something, it's an idea that's so familiar to us and so real to many of us in this room, Lord, we can never fully exhaust the greatness of your grace the goodness of your gospel to us, Lord. And so I pray that even this day we would be refreshed, we would be uh, revived in your word because of your love for us. We ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. The title of the sermon is simply God's Amazing Grace, Our Motivation for Godly Living. As we went through our, our text last Sunday, we saw that, that God has something to say to everyone in the church. No matter your age, no matter your gender, no matter your background, God has something to say to you about how to live a life of godliness. How the truth accords with godliness in your own life. He had something to say to older men, and he had something to say to older women, and he had something to say to younger women, and he had something to say to younger men. As you heard those verses read last week and heard them preached, I suspect, even though no no one came up to me and said this, but I suspect you may have thought, oh my goodness, that's that's kind of hard. That's that's a bit more than I, I want to handle. 
And we saw the results of, of what's supposed to happen when we live out these ways, that the word of God may not be reviled and so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And most importantly, we saw that in everything we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We know that that's supposed to be the result of this godly living that Christ is calling us to. And yet, if we're just really honest, sometimes we lack the motivation. Why in the world do I want to do these things? Older men, why do you want to live a life above reproach, live a life of wisdom, of sobriety, of self-control? And older women, we saw all the things that, that the text asked of you and to teach younger women and the things that younger women were asked to do to love their husbands and children and to be kind and submissive and all these things and young men to be self-controlled. That's a lot to ask. Why would God ask us to live this way? And how are we supposed to be able to do that? Well, it's all wrapped up in these verses. The grace of God has appeared. Because of God's amazing grace, this provides the motivation of how we're supposed to live this out. So let's go through these verses. And even, even if the sermon is not very good, the text is really good. It reminds us of how wonderful God is and how much he loves us and how he has saved us. So let's walk through these verses and see our motivation for godly living. We see that Paul connects all of this, what he's already said, because he begins with the little word for. Remember, he's not just throwing out random statements. He's connecting everything that he said. He's making a well-reasoned argument. And he says, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, God's grace is something that all Christians are familiar with. We've experienced it. If we're in Christ, we have experienced God's grace. And yet we can never fully mine the depths of God's grace. We can't even fully articulate it. It's hard to come up with a good definition of grace that covers all the bases. Uh, many people just often say that God's grace is God's unmerited favor. And that's a good definition. It reminds us that God's loving kindness towards us, his mercy towards us, is not because of anything we have done. It's unmerited. God's grace is God's unmerited favor on us. The Old Testament often uses the word loving kindness, referring to God, God's loving kindness. That's uh, the Old Testament equivalent of God's grace upon us. Perhaps you've heard of the acrostic for grace, that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a helpful way of thinking of it as well. We can never fully understand, we can never exhaust the goodness of God's grace. And yet, if we are in Christ, we have experienced God's grace. But the text says that the grace of God has appeared. This word for appeared gives us our word for epiphany. Now, if someone says, I've had an epiphany, it doesn't mean that they've just thought of something that they've never heard of before, that they that had never, uh, anyone else had thought of it before. It just means it hadn't been on their mind, and then all of a sudden the light bulb went off and it came to them. And they say, I've had an epiphany. In the uh, old Greek literature, around the time that the New Testament was written, this word was often used to describe the sunrise. Now, it's not that the sun goes away each night and disappears, but we know that the earth is rotating and we don't see the sun, but each morning it pops back up and it just suddenly appears. It's an epiphany. And so even as God's grace has always been extended toward us, even from before the foundations of the earth, there was never a time that God lacked in grace. There came a point in time when the grace of God appeared. He's referring to the incarnation. When God came to earth in human flesh, he confined himself 
to our human flesh. The God of all glory came to earth as one of us, and he was born as a baby, truly God and truly man. But it doesn't say that for the Son of God has appeared. It says for the grace of God has appeared. It's as if grace is personified in these verses, that grace is acting. And we often... uh, we, we associate these two together. We know that Jesus extends grace to us, but here in this verse, uh, it's going to get eventually to Jesus proper, but for now, it's about grace personified. It's as if the song says, grace has a face. And so for the grace of God has appeared. So what did grace do for us? This is God's amazing grace. We're going to see how this plays out. God's grace to us in salvation. First, God's grace brings salvation for all people. It brings salvation for all people. As we go through these verses, we're going to see that Paul is teaching us about the doctrine of salvation. Salvation is something that we can never fully exhaust. It's so wonderful and so rich. We can learn and learn and never cease to be amazed at how magnificent it is that God has saved us. And we're going to walk through what I like to call salvation, past, present, and future. Because he says here first that grace has appeared and is bringing salvation for all people. Now when he says all people, does that mean that all people will be saved? Well, no. We know that's not true. We know that there are many people who will actually die and go to hell because they have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. No one has presented the gospel to them. No one has told them that they need salvation and that salvation can be found in Jesus Christ. So the verse is not saying that all people will be saved, but it's saying that there is a potentiality that all people can be saved. If we reach them with the gospel, if we share the gospel with people, they actually have the opportunity to be saved. We know that this verse does not teach universalism, that all people will be saved. But if I could be rather pointed, how often do we act as functional universalists? Here's what I mean by that. How often would we say, oh, I know the Bible says that not all people will be saved. I know that the Bible says that someone must repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. I know that it says that, but I don't live that way. When I have the opportunity to tell someone about the goodness of Jesus Christ, that the grace of God has appeared, how often do I have that opportunity and I let it pass by? Oh, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. We often act as functional universalists. We act as if everybody's going to be fine. Everybody's going to be saved. Because if they're not, we have to tell them. But so often we don't. We let that opportunity pass by. But the grace of God has appeared And it's made salvation possible for all people, for all groups of people, as we saw, for older men and younger men and older women and younger women, no matter your age or your background or your gender, whatever's going on in your life, it is possible for you to be saved. But not just groups of people, individuals. It's possible for you to be saved and you to be saved and you to be saved. God's grace has appeared and it's brought salvation for all people. Now, when we look what I call salvation in the past tense. We look back to that moment in time when we were saved. For me, it was when I was a 12-year-old boy. I'd grown up in church. I had heard the gospel many, many times. 
And yet there was one Sunday at the beginning of a revival service when I, I heard a preacher, and I have no idea what he said even to this day, but I remember God's conviction upon my heart. And when I went home that afternoon, it was in my bedroom. I knew that I had to make it right with God. I had to repent of my sins and trust Christ as my Savior. And even as I've looked back since then, there have been many times when I've not walked with God and I've said, Lord, was I really saved at that point? God has settled that time. I know that in that moment in time in salvation past, I was saved. I was justified. That's the theological word for what happens to us when we are saved. We go from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being alive in Christ. We go from being guilty before a holy God to being just because the just Son of God has taken our place. He has made us righteous even as he has taken on our unrighteousness. This is salvation in the past tense that at one moment in time, if you were in Christ, you look back over your life and you know that at that moment I was saved and I was justified. God saved me from the penalty of sin. That's what happens when we're saved. We're justified. That's salvation past. But God's salvation is so rich and so wonderful. God's grace is so amazing that that's not the end of the story. Salvation continues. We have salvation even in the present. Look at verse 12. He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God has appeared and it's bringing salvation and it's training us. Training us. We hear the word even in English, we automatically think of, of discipline, of building up good habits. Perhaps you think back in your life and you remember a time when perhaps a parent or a coach or someone tried to instill good habits in you. They were trying to train you to make you a better person. And when you look back, if those habits stuck, you can testify and say how those good habits have blessed you even in the days going forward. We understand that power, the power of training, of discipline, of good habits. We understand that in our personal lives. But did you know that God is also training us in our spiritual lives? He's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives. The Holy Spirit of God is working to build up good habits in us. And for those of us who have those habits, you understand again the benefit of that. You could testify to the benefit of having those good habits. The training of being disciplined in reading your Bible and praying to God, worshiping God. We understand that even in our personal spiritual lives. But did you know that the Holy Spirit is also training us as a body? That every time we gather, we're building up habits. That's why it matters what we do when we come together, because God is building up good habits in us. It doesn't mean that we haven't had good habits over the past 50 years. It means we're to continue to keep growing as long as we're on this earth to continue to build up good habits because the Holy Spirit is working in us. This is the beauty of salvation, that salvation has saved us at one moment in the past. God has saved us, and we are freed from the penalty of sin. But now, even in this present age, the Holy Spirit is freeing us from the power of sin. He's training us so that we might live according to the gospel, that we would live lives that reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does he say here? He's training us to renounce, to deny to say no to, to give up, to say, I'm going to renounce and deny ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness. Clearly, just by looking at the word, we know that's antithetical. That's the opposite of God. 
Anything that makes us unlike God is ungodly. But the Holy Spirit and salvation present as he is sanctifying us, he is cleansing us, he is conforming us to the image of God's son, Jesus Christ. He's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What are worldly passions? God has given us passions. He has given us affections. And and when they're channeled in the right way, funneled in the right way, they are good things. Many of the things that we do can be stewardships of what God has given us. Remember in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that whatsoever we do, whether we eat or drink, to do it all for the glory of God. So it doesn't necessarily mean that just any old thing in our life is, is a bad thing. But when those things take priority over our relationship with Christ, they become worldly passions. So, for example, let's take money. We need money to function in this society. And God has created us to work. And in our society, when you work, you receive money. That's how, it, that's how the whole thing works and functions together. So when we steward our money, that's a good thing. We can use our money to meet our basic needs, but also to serve God. We can glorify God even with the way we use our money. But when our money becomes more of a priority to us, then our relationship with God, then it has become a worldly passion. It's something that God has given to us for good, and we've allowed it to morph into something that God never intended for it to be. And it becomes a worldly passion. But the Holy Spirit of God has saved us in salvation past. He saved us from the penalty of sin, but now he is saving us even today from the power of sin. That sin, as you look back over your Christian life, you ought to be able to see times when you can look back and say, you know, I remember when that used to be a struggle for me. I remember when I used to to have a a hard time overcoming the sin, but now because of the Holy Spirit's work in my life, I have conquered that sin. I have victory over that sin. That's because the Holy Spirit is training us. He's working in us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He's saving us from the power of sin. But that's what he's trained us to say no to. That's what the grace of God is training us to say no to. But the grace of God trains us to say yes to certain things as well. Look in the second half of verse 12. The grace of God has appeared training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's that word again, self-controlled. It kept popping up over and over last week. It applied to all four groups, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. They were all told to be self-controlled. Controlled, But let's think about that for a minute. What does it mean to live a self-controlled life? When we think of someone who is self-controlled, we might look at them and say, you know, they've got it all together. But in reality, we recognize that nobody's really got it all together. So when we see someone who is self-controlled, the emphasis here as the verse is what we saw in the fruit of the Spirit. That one of the fruits of God's Spirit working in us is self-control. So it's not so much that we are controlling ourselves, it is that God, through His Spirit, is controlling us. He's producing this in our lives. This is how we have self-control. This is how we live upright lives. What does it mean to be upright? You have the idea of someone looking at you and evaluating you and saying, you know that person? They live an upright life. When the world can look at you and say, I may disagree with that person, But they're an honorable person. They're doing the right thing. This is an upright life. But if we took just those two words, self-control, the way we normally think of self-control, and we added upright to that, 
we might be tempted to think that this is just something we can do on our own. That this is something we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we can do this thing. We can live a good life. We can be self-controlled. We can be upright. And through that, we can be right with God. Oh, no. We can never, no, never, no, never be right with God by our works. No matter how self-controlled and upright you may look on the outside, this last word here, this last attribute is something that only comes because of the Holy Spirit of God working in us. Godly lives. The grace of God has appeared that we might live godly lives. We can't do that on our own. In and of ourselves, we are not godly. There's no way we can live a godly life in and of ourselves. But the grace of God has appeared and is giving us victory. It's freeing us from the power of sin so that we can live godly lives even in this present age. The present age, obvious, is what's going on right now in the world around us. And sometimes it can be so discouraging when we see these imperatives, to put it grammatically, these commands in God's Word where God is telling us you need to live this way and you need to live that way and you need to do this and you need to do that. And we, sometimes we get so focused on the imperatives of God's Word that we forget the indicatives. The indicatives are what tell us what's true. It's what we're going through right here that all of this is what God has done on our behalf. This is what's true. This is the indicative. The only way that we can do these things that Christ has called us to do is because of what Christ has already done on our behalf. And that's the only way that we can live an upright and godly life in the present age. But we're not living only for the present age. There's more than just this world around us. So the grace of God has appeared. It's bringing salvation. It's training us. But it also causes us to be waiting. We're waiting not for the present age, but for the next age. We're waiting for our blessed hope. You see, as we marvel at God's goodness to us in salvation, we recognize that at one particular moment in the past, He has saved us from the penalty of sin. And even as we on go in this life now, He's saving us from the power of sin. But one day, praise God, He will save us even from the presence of sin. There will come a day that sin will exist no more. And this is our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we're waiting for. This present age is not the end of the story. There's more to come. So the grace of God has appeared and it's bringing and it's training. But oh, we are waiting. We are waiting for our blessed hope. We don't like waiting. If we're just honest, we just really don't like waiting. When we look around and we see injustice happen and we say, Lord, I'm just ready for you to come and correct the situation, to bring justice, to make all things right. But God tells us that the Christian life is filled with waiting. We don't only live in the present age, we're also living for the age to come. We are waiting for our blessed hope. The future tense of salvation is our glorification when Christ returns when he appears, notice that same word again, appearing. The grace of God has appeared and the grace of God will appear. 
The grace of God has appeared at a moment in time in the past when Jesus Christ was born as a baby in Bethlehem. But one day the grace of God will appear again, not as a baby in Bethlehem, but as a conquering king. What comes to your mind when you think about the return of our Lord? I particularly enjoy the passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage, comfort one another with these words. You say, Pastor, what's that going to look like? I don't know, but I can't wait to see. Are we living in light of eternity? That Christ will one day return? That we're not living just for this present age, but that we're living in light of eternity? That one day, even as Christ appeared before, he will appear again. Even as he came once, he will surely come again. What do you think about when you think about the return of our Lord? Do you think about the the reunion with family and friends and loved ones? That's a wonderful thing. I know that many are taking comfort in that even this day. But that's not the end of the story. Are you taking comfort in the fact that we will be with Christ forever? Oh, that's an amazing thing. That's what makes heaven heaven, that we will be with Christ, that the dwelling place of God will be with man, as we see in the book of Revelation. But that's not the end of the story either. Because all of the wrong that we see in this world, every evil, every sin will be conquered by our soon coming king. When we look at the book of Revelation in chapter 19 and we see the triumphant rider on the white horse, we see Christ returning in all of his glory and all the enemies of this earth will be defeated with one little word. This is our blessed hope that we don't have to live just for this life, but that we're living for the age to come, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of God's salvation, that even as we have been saved in the past, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, that even as right now we are being saved from the power of sin, praise God, one day we will be saved even from the presence of sin. This will be our glorification. This is God's amazing grace. This ought to motivate us to live godly lives. You say, have you already forgotten what it said? Can you imagine a slave saying, you want me to obey my master even when he's wicked and vile and vicious? And God says, that's not the end. That's not the end of the story. You say, young women, God really wants me to love my husband, to be kind and pure. You haven't met the man. He's not godly at all. 
He's not someone that I want to submit to. He's not someone seeking to live an upright and godly life. But God says this is not the end. The end of the story comes when our king returns, when he appears again, just as he appeared in Bethlehem. One day, Christ will return. And this is our blessed hope. We can take comfort in this. And we can be motivated by this to live upright and godly lives. Because no matter what we face in this life, no matter how truly bad and terrible it may be, this is not the end. Paul identifies Jesus at the end of verse 13 as our great God and Savior. He's not referring to God the Father and God the Son. This is all about Jesus, the Son. And we must be reminded every chance we get that Jesus truly is God. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a moral authority. Jesus is God, and he is our Savior. And it's as if Paul comes to this great acclamation. He comes to this great doxology of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's as if he makes a second lap through the same idea again. That's what we see in verse 14. He comes back and he gives us a lot of the same ideas, but in a different way of stating it. Who is Jesus Christ? We're no longer talking about just the grace of God, but Jesus himself. Who is Christ? Verse 14, he who gave himself for us to redeem us. And purify us. This is who Christ is. He gave himself up for us. Never lose sight of that. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth and he took your sin, your punishment that you deserve, and he bore it in himself. He died a sinner's death that he did not deserve. He gave himself up for us. This is critically important. And liberal theologians try to minimize this. Liberal Christians try to act like this is not true. It's just too bloody. We don't want to talk about that, that Jesus died on a cross in our place and he shed his blood for our sins. But this is our hope. This is what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. And what's the end result of that? Well, first, he redeems us from all lawlessness. He redeems us. This is what we've seen in these verses of salvation. I'm sure you're familiar with this idea that to redeem something is conjuring up the image of a slave on the auction block. And the highest bidder comes and takes the slave and he has a new master. He takes him uh, to a new place. But you and I were on the slave block of sin. We were standing there just like our mother and father, Adam and Eve. We were standing there naked and ashamed, having nothing to bring but just our sins and our trespasses. And then comes Christ and he redeems us. He pays the price for us. And now we have a new master. We have a new Lord. We have a new person to serve. He has redeemed us, not just that we can go do whatever we want to do, but he's redeemed us so that he might purify us. You see, God's grace doesn't just bring forgiveness. It does that, but it brings more than that. God's grace doesn't just bring forgiveness. It also brings faithfulness. That's what Christ has come to do. He has come to redeem us and to purify us. He redeems us from all lawlessness, all ungodliness. He has made it possible that we don't have to live lawless lives. We don't have to live ungodly lives. Because of the work of Christ on our behalf, we can be free. We can be redeemed. But not only that, he has 
purified us. He has cleansed us. And he has made for himself a people for his own possession. That takes us all the way back to the passage we read at the beginning of the service, Exodus 19. That even as God brought out the nation of Israel out of the land of bondage and slavery, and he freed them and he cleansed them and he made them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Christ has done that on our behalf. He has redeemed us. He has brought us out of our slavery and our bondage to sin, and he's made it possible that we could serve him. The New Testament is very clear that that passage in Exodus is applied to Christians, that he has made us, the church, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and he has purified for himself. We could camp out there for a while, but we don't have the time that we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ. God has purified for himself a people, the church, for his own possession. We are his peculiar treasure, as the King James says. Now, I know too often Christians act peculiar, but that's not what it's talking about. It means a special treasure. God has given, for, he's given himself for us to bring a people for his own possession, a peculiar treasure. And what's the end result? Who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. We don't use that word very often. Because we know that zealots, people who are zealous, they go a little too far. They're a little out there. They're a bit extreme. People typically frown upon zealots. Yet Christ has saved us. He has redeemed us and purified us that we might be zealous for good works. Have you stopped to consider that? Have you pondered on what Ephesians 2 tells us, that Christ has prepared good works for us from before the foundations of the earth? That before you were born, God already had good works laid out for you, planned for you? How then should we not be zealous for good works? Zealous to serve the one who has redeemed us. He has purified us, who has saved us, is saving us, and will ultimately and finally save us in the last day. This is our glorious salvation. This is our motivation for godly living. This provides the perfect balance between legalism and licentiousness. Some of you may have grown up in a church that practiced legalism. It added boundaries where God did not put boundaries. It made laws where God did not put laws. And it's a very oppressive type of life. It's a very oppressive form of Christianity, and it's not found in the Bible. It's legalism. It's what we think of when we think of the Pharisees. In Jesus' ministry, as he often interacted with the Pharisees, and he told them that they had put up boundaries, they had added things that God did not intend. That's legalism. But on the other side, you have licentiousness. You have the, the freedom to just do whatever you want to do because, hey, we're all covered by God's grace. That's what they say. Paul addresses that in the book of Romans. He says, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound even more? Meganoita, God forbid, may it not be so. This is licentiousness to people who would say, oh, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm covered by God's grace. I can just do anything I want to, even if God's word clearly prohibits it because it's all of grace. 
What's the balance between legalism and licentiousness? It's the amazing grace of God. That because of what God has done for us, because grace has appeared, we can be zealous for good works. That we can want to do good works. Not that we're forced to do good works. Not that the preacher stands up and beats us over the head with the Bible every week telling us that we have to do something. But because we want to. Because we're so in awe of how our Savior has brought freedom and redemption that we want to serve him. Isn't this amazing? Paul concludes this chapter in verse 15 with a bookend. He says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He began the chapter by saying, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He begins and ends the chapter emphasizing to Titus and by extension to the pastor, declare these things, speak these things. And really, it's everything that he's covered so far in this letter. The warning against false teaching, the need to live out godly lives because the gospel has impacted our lives. But not just that, not just the imperatives, but also the indicatives, the truth about salvation that the grace of God has appeared. We're to declare these things. We're to exhort, to comfort, to call, to stand alongside. That's what the word exhort means, to bring God's word in a way that comforts people. But also to rebuke with all authority, to rebuke, to correct, to say, no, that's not what God's word says. But the pastor, but Titus, is not to do that in his own authority. He comes and the authority of the one who has all authority. Remember when we studied the Great Commission, we see that Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And we go out in the authority of the one who has all authority. So when the pastor comes, not in his own authority, but in the authority of God's word, rightly interpreted, rightly applied, he says, let no one disregard you. But the heart of this passage is that the grace of God has appeared. I know it's tempting, even in my own life, that the grace of God, our salvation, is is something that's so distant. It's so far back in the rearview mirror that sometimes we don't allow it to have an ongoing effect in our lives. And I hope that you see that salvation is not just something that happened once in the past. Yes, you were saved at that point. I'm not trying to deny that at all, but it has ongoing effects that you were saved and that you are being saved and that one day you will be ultimately saved. And this is our blessed hope. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that true of you? Are you here today and you recognize that you are not walking with Christ? You have never repented of your sins. You've never trusted Christ as your savior. When you hear the things that we're supposed to renounce, the ungodliness and worldly passions, you think, oh no, that describes me. If that's true of you, I plead with you today, repent and trust Christ. In a moment, I'll be down here. I'll be glad to talk to you with you about God's word, about this glorious, amazing grace. But for the rest of us who are here, and this has been a reality for a long time, we have been saved by God's glorious grace because the grace of God has appeared. Is that still impacting your daily life? Does it make you want to serve Christ, not out of duty, not as a burden, 
but because you love the Lord who saved you. If that's not true of you, would you be reminded today of how wonderful God's salvation is? How amazing truly is God's grace upon us? And I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead each of us, would show each of us how we can live in light of God's amazing grace, that this would be our motivation for godly living. Let's pray.